ਵਾਹਿਗੁਰੂ ਜੀ ਕਾ ਖਾਲਸਾ ਵਾਹਿਗੁਰੂ ਜੀ ਕੀ ਫਤਿਹ ਵਾਹਿਗੁਰੂ ਜੀ ਕਾ ਖਾਲਸਾ ਵਾਹਿਗੁਰੂ ਜੀ ਕੀ ਫਤਿਹ ਯੈਪ ਸੋ ਯੂ ਆਰ ਰਿਸੀਵਿੰਗ ਮੀ ਲਾਊਡ ਐਂਡ ਕਲੀਅਰ ਯੈਪ ਐਮ ਆਈ ਲਾਊਡ ਐਂਡ ਕਲੀਅਰ ਕੋਸ ਐਟ ਦਿਸ ਮੋਮੈਂਟ ਆਮ ਨਾਟ ਯੂਜ਼ਿੰਗ ਮਾਈ ਮਾਈ ਏਅਰਫੋਨਸ ਨੋ ਯੂ ਆਰ ਲਾਊਡ ਐਂਡ ਕਲੀਅਰ ਯੂ ਹੈਵ ਨੇਵਰ ਬੀਨ ਬੈਟਰ ਸੋ ਆਈ ਸ਼ੁਡ ਯੂ ਨਾਟ ਯੂਜ਼ ਮਾਈ ਏਅਰਫੋਨਸ ਥੈਨ ਓਕੇ ਵੈਲ as long as they aren't uh, one of those dr dre ones i guess everything goes fine <laughs> <laughs> anyhow the topic for today was something very spontaneous obviously we were supposed to do another episode but we decided to do this because a certain species of troll were targeting guru tegbahadur on social media so we had a influx of questions buried underneath questions as to what the truth was about guru tegbahadur now the fact is sikh history has been altered or rewritten to such a degree that sikhs today have started to doubt their own gurus unfortunately that's true unfortunately that's true now from a gurbani perspective we have guru teg bahadur who actually reformed society as well as sets a new precedent in the war for the freedom of conscience over religious dogma the pujari's guru teg bahadur is some rishi muni meditating on some high mountain chandi comes to him and he creates dusht daman to help chandi so that's the pujari's guru teg bahadur now which guru teg bahadur is the real teg bahadur the one we see in the picture in the greco roman settings with his high eyes half closed wearing obviously a modern kurta pajama and a shawl with his eyes you know very red as well from what we can see or the guru teg bahadur who would have actually worn a very fine imperial turban a kalgi a sword red in a horse and been ready to lay down his life for guru nanak's cause which is the real guru teg bahadur that's the f- fundamental question we will answer today we will answer today yep <clears throat> now i'm sure you have heard of the myth that his name was tyagmal and that he was renamed as teg bahadur not just me everybody believes that well i don't <laughs> believe it but i've heard it yes and this is something we actually mentioned in one of the past episodes but really the reality is per dr karminder singh tillo is that you know by no means could have guru hargobind named his son tyagmal as tyagta or renunciation is not a part of sikhi well yeah tyag is not part of sikhi true so the first thing is Saib Jada Teg Bahadur first comes to our notice historically speaking he's born in 1621 he comes to our notice in late 1634 now this is the battle of batinda or near batinda now we have heard the story of how khalil beg the governor of lahore confiscated or deliberately snatched away two horses two war horses iraqi stallions intended for guru hargobind sahib ji from his son in law So we have heard how Bidhi Chand went to Lahore and tricked him into you know giving those horses to him and he rode them away to where Guru Hargobind Sahib ji was based in Ramdaspur or Amritsar as it's known today. Now what happens next is that Khalil Beg is caught in a catch 22 situation his opponents inform the incumbent emperor Shah Jahan that he's got these two fine horses for you Shah Jahan demands those horses but Shah Jahan does not know that you know the Sikhs have retrieved their guru's property <clears throat> so feeling he still has the time Khalil Beg decides that he's going to dispatch his two cousin brothers 
Kamar Beg and Lal Beg to you know obtain those horses and destroy the Sikhs. Now, obviously, Guru Hargobind Sahib Ji receives intelligence of this. He vacates Amritsar straight away, leaves it, evacuates it, leaves the Darbar Sahib and starts strategically retreating in front of the Beg brothers. Obviously, they're fixated on him and he lures them away until near Batinda. Saib Jada Tegbhadr leads a very deadly ambush and in a matter of hours, the Begs are annihilated and their forces as well. So this is the first incident, the first mention of Saib Jada Tegbhadr in history. And mind you, his organizational skills, his leadership skills, his strategy, his tactics, they not only won this battle, but another subsequent battle near Natana. So from the start, the name Teg Bhadr is well earned. Okay, a side point here. Yes. In your entire life, have you ever come across anybody or a name, let's say of your, maybe an old man, a grandfather, great-grandfather, whose name was Teag? Teag Seng or no. no, 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 not in my life. Not even in my grandfather's life. I've actually asked him this question. He's from... He actually arrived from Pakistan in 47, so no, not in his life as well. Well, that's what I'm trying to make. These names do not exist in our in our, in our in our civilization. In our in our Sikh civilization, obviously. Now, the next thing is in 1635. That's when Guru Tegh Bahadur again, or Pai Tegh Bahadur, comes to the fore when he defeats Mir Badera and Kale Khan, two of Pende Khan's foremost captains, in the Battle of Jalandhar. Pende Khan attempted to slay Guru Hargobind. So that's the third mention of the warrior Teg Bahadur. Now, a bit of a backdrop to all these issues. <clears throat> the incumbent emperor is Shah Jahan, and Shah Jahan has, you know, multiple children from Montaj. Two of the sons... So yes. So two of the children who stand out. The first is Darashiko, who's actually intended for the imperial throne. And the second one is one of the youngest ones, and that is Aurangzeb. Now, let's remember, these children were once held, especially the boys, they were actually once held hostage by Shah Jahan's uh, father, Jahagir, when he mutinied against his father for the imperial throne. And during this time, Aurangzeb actually came in contact with Khwaja Muhammad Masoom. Now, Masoom was the son of Ahmad Shah Sarhindi. Now, you know the common strain interlinking Al-Qaeda, Wahhabi Islam, ISIS, and all these fundamental branches of Sunni Islam? Mm -hmm. That is the Naqshbandi school of thought, which was founded in India. True. And the Naqshbandis were founded by Sheikh Ahmad Shah Sarhindi, who actually believed he was going to be the regenerator of the second millennium of Islam, who was going to... Uh, herald the age of paradise as far as the Quranic version of it was concerned, that Islam would rule all over the world and uh, subdue infidelity. So he was born in Sirhind. Obviously, he was a religious demagogue, and he acquired the patronage of Murtaza Khan, who was the governor of Lahore. Lahore being one of the foremost parts of the subcontinental, Mughal subcontinental empire, this allowed him to have direct access to Prince Salim, who was, Jahagi, uh, who was Jahagir, and who at the time was Akbar's very rebellious son. Now, to incite his father, 
Salim had one of his uh, primary retainers murdered for questioning the Prophet Muhammad. Now, as far as Akbar was concerned, Akbar also questioned the Prophet Muhammad. Akbar questioned everyone and everything under the sun. But the Islamic orthodoxy could not, you know, withstand this. Salim fell into their hands. Now, of course, Islam says you can't criticize your Islamic ruler, even if he's an alcoholic. So Salim pretty much calculated his chances that if he agreed with Sirhandi that they would get him the throne of India as long as he let them do what they wanted political-wise, politically, he had nothing to lose. And that's exactly what happened. So these two, Murtaza Khan and Sirhindi, played a prominent role in having Akbar murdered. Salim put on the imperial throne as Jahagir. And obviously, we know that in those early years of Jahagir's reign, there was a whole policy of terror imposed upon the subcontinent. There was open cow slaughter. There was open destruction of temples and taramsalas. Basically, if you were not a Sunni Muslim, you were in for it. What's new? <laughs> Obviously, what's new? And Sirhindi played a very pivotal, very prominent role in having Guru Arjun executed as well. And I guess if he's alive somewhere, he's probably turning in whatever hell he is in, realizing that almost, you know, nearly a century to two century later, centuries later, Banda Singh Bhadra attacked the place of his birth and forbade the Sikhs from burning down his mosque just to spite his memory that, look, you destroyed all places of worship. We won't destroy the mosque you built. Rather, we will leave it as a sign of your patheticness, of how pathetic you were in life. Yep, true. Obviously, political correctness does not allow people to look that far. But anyway, what happened with Sirhindi was Murtaza Khan died in the field of battle. He attacked Guru Hargobind out of frustration. And, you know, it's said that Guru Hargobind was standing, looking down at one of his wounded soldiers, actually Pende Khan. And he was bent down. He had a shield on his arm when Murtaza Khan suddenly rushed upon him. Guru Hargobind saw him out of the corner of his eye, his peripheral vision. Rose blocked his vad pivoted around on his heel and then suddenly started, you know, uh, launching his own attacks with his karpan on Murtaza Khan. These two fought back and forth until Murtaza Khan attempted to stab him. The guru sidestepped and then with one blow of his sword, decapitated him right there and then. You also have to remember that Guru Hargobind Sahib was a physically imposing figure. Very imposing, the tallest and the most muscular out of the Dasa Padshaya, Guru Hargobind. Uh, well, uh, I'm not too sure about the records or maybe the system of height we use wasn't invented back then. But I've heard from many, many people that was nearly seven feet tall. And I was like, well, uh, maybe, maybe not that tall, but he was a very imposing figure. He, he required two horses to ride on. Yes, very, very imposing figure and ambidextrous. He was able to use a kirpan proficiently in both hands. So that's true, yeah. Another thing we need to remember down here is that we'll just touch upon it now that we're discussing it. The stupid myth that the Rajputs trained the Sikhs. This is all rubbish. Guru Arjun was the first one to raise the embryonic Sikh army. After him, the Gurus always had a template. They never had any Rajputs help them raise any army. Could we say that the second Guru was a wrestler? Well, I believe that the first Guru, Guru Nanak, would have been a warrior himself as well. He would have participated in the defense of Sedpur with the Kirpan. That's what I believe. Yep. Yep. Uh, well, uh, well. Of course, uh, there is there is a very strong possibility. 
But I was thinking that if you start, let's say, a tradition of wrestling, it's not going away any anytime soon. No, no. I mean, I don't believe this would have been conventional wrestling. This would have been like grappling war, battlefield grappling, you know, for self-defense. Yeah, well, of course not, not for competition, for self-defense. I, I think they, they pretty much knew what, what was coming in the, in the next decades or maybe in the next century. Yes, yes. So, basically... Now, what happens to Sir Hindi? That's a question which history has as well. Now, what Sardar Kapoor Singh actually discovered in his researches was Sir Hindi was in the habit of having Jahagir's poets executed. And there was one poet in particular who used to write a very perverted and horny verses which Jahagir liked. And <laughs> Sir Hindi was caught at by his own hand. Now, Sir Hindi used to preach that we got Arjun the Kafir killed because he questioned our caliphate and our glorious ruler Jahagir. And he decided to have Jahagir's favorite uh, poet, uh, you know, writer of the horny verses executed. And suddenly Jahagir turned upon him. Now, Jahagir knew that, you know, executing Sir Hindi openly would do no good. So what he did was he threw Sir Hindi in a jail. And that's where Sir Hindi died like a star, uh, rabid dog, pretty much. So in a way, the mighty had truly fallen. And it well, said that... Uh... The, yep. I've heard of the satanic verses, the satanic verses from Rushdie, but yep. the horny verses, that's, that, that's a first for me. <laughs> well, you know, it's also believed that there was a massive coincidence because the day Sir Hindi was thrown into prison, that's the day Guru Hargobind Sahibji was released from Gwalior. Ah, okay. That cannot be a coincidence. So, uh, Obviously, it might have been Jahagir deciding to sort of uh, just uh, highlight the irony of the situation to Sir Hindi as well, because really it was, it would have been a massive slap in his face. Sir Hindi used to believe Guru Arjan was the foremost enemy of Islam. He used to leave, uh, he used to lose sleep over the fact that Guru Arjan was alive. He must have his reasons because uh, <laughs> we, we have to remember that the establishment of Amritsar as a, as a city that was in control of the Sikhs. That would have been a major headache. That would have been a major headache. And the fact that Guru Arjun was also armed and a warrior as well, even though he didn't participate in any combat. Now, <clears throat> Khwaja Muhammad Masung is Sir Hindi's son. He's pretty much a hostage down there at the Mughal camp. And what happens is that Shah Jahan, obviously Shah Jahan has pretty much forgotten the past and he's decided that, look, if the Naqshbandis want to help us, let them help us. And even Shah Jahan had a fanatical streak. So what happens is that Aurangzeb and Muhammad Masum strike up a friendship. And it's believed that initially Masum was only following Jahagi's camp because he had no other means of income, given that his father was in jail and uh, his father's disciples were being hunted down. Anyhow, Masum and Aurangzeb strike up a friendship. And that's where Masum inculcates Aurangzeb into the Naqshbandi cult and from there, Aurangzeb's fanaticism starts. What a great name, Masum. Masum. Now, what happens is, in the meantime, Guru Hargobind Sahibji is at Kiritpur. He knows that the Sikhs will be, you know, in the future, the Gurus will be finding the Khalsa. There will be massive battles. What he does is he vacates Amritsar because the open plains aren't conducive to the strategy the Sikhs will have to adopt, which is of guerrilla warfare and ambush tactics. So he departs for the foothills of the Himalayas in the Shivalik Hills. He finds Kiratpur, and that's where he officiates the son of Pai Gurdatta, the youngest son of Pai Gurdatta. Harai is the seventh Nanak of the Sikhs. Now, 
when Guru Harai assumes his, you know, incumbency, now the first thing is, you know, in the history books we have, Guru Harai probably has two pages dedicated to him at the most. Yep. Not not much is known now. True. <clears throat> not much is known, except the thing is that upon, you know, ascending to Guruship, Guru Harai confronted a lot of, you know, menaces. He had the Masands to deal with. He had Tirmal, who was his, uh, you know, elder brother, Pirthi Chansan Meherban. He had the Nakshbandis who were in the resurgent. He had a lot of elements to confront, a lot of factions. And primarily the one individual who assisted him in the Punjab and beyond was Pai Teg Bhadr, who was based at Bakara at that time. So obviously there is a myth that, you know, Guru Teg Bhadr spent Chabisal 26 years in Apora. This is a myth. There is no reality to it. This myth has been exposed many times before. I mean, if we talk about a Gurdwara where the Pora is actually built well, then we need to read Captain Bhag Singh and Mool Singh Jima's analysis of multiple Gurdwaras in Pakistan and Bangladesh, which were constructed with a false history. Uh, okay. <clears throat> to, to think that the... If, if let's say Guru Sahib spent 26 years in a, in a basement, or as a basement here, yeah? Yes. So that would mean that he he's, he stayed away from Sikh activities for 26 years. For 26 years. So why would you make him guru? Yeah. Well, that's point number one. Yes. And if you are staying away for 26 years in such a tumultuous time, in modern times, this will amount to treason. This would amount to treason. Now, the third point I would like to point out here, and I'm sure you will agree with me on this. It is said in Gurbani that the Guru is a physical form of Vaheguru. So mm -hmm. when you have a Guru, when you have the Guru, see Gurus who are argued to be the most perfect of perfect, why would that Guru spend 26 years doing tapasya in Apora to merge and with Vaheguru? When it said that they're already one with Vaheguru from the start. Well, you're using logic in in religion. Their logic is like a, a, a kryptonite. Kryptonite. If you're saying there's predestination, if you're saying there's fast karma, everything so everything points towards Guru Tegh Bhadra becoming Guru. So why would he be doing the pasya in Apora? Absolutely no answer to this point. No no answer. You'll probably receive no a beating or something, but no answer. <laughs> okay, leaving aside the beating part, hopefully not. Anyhow, Guru Harai is being assisted by Guru Tegh Bhadr. So Guru Tegh Bhadr or Pai Tegh Bhadr at this stage informs Guru Harai that, look, the Punjab is under the wise royalty of Darashiko. He's a liberal. Come down. And Guru Harai actually does come to the Punjab and he converts thousands to Sikhi in Amritsar, Dwaba and Malva. Yep, no, my, my family. Yes. So afterwards, what happens is that when Guru Hara departs, Dara is recalled to Delhi. Now, he's a liberal as well. So Punjab is at peace under him. And Dara is very, very intrigued by Guru Hara. He meets Guru Hara and he's very interested in Guru Hara's views. And what Dara feels is that while there are fundamental and unbreachable differences between Sikhi and Islam, Sikhi is possibly something which can entail progression for the subcontinent and Guru Harai can usher in a new era, men like Guru Harai. So what happens is that when he's called back to Delhi, he actually falls afoul of Aurangzeb and Masum and they decide to poison his food.
Now, the poison it's believed is made out of tiger's whiskers, and these pretty much cause internal bleeding in Dara's, you know, physicality. So all these internal problems plague him. However, when the doctors succeed in healing him, the pain does not go away. So to avail the pain, the physicians inform Shah Jahan that they need a certain variety of herbs which are only found in Kiratpur and the surrounding areas. And those areas are under the command of Guru Harai and his Akali warriors. Now, Shah Jahan decides to adopt some tact. Obviously, he's confronted Guru Hargobind Sahibji in the past and been defeated. So this time he decides, look, He's had enough of war. Contemporary English sources uh, from the men who actually met him, English merchants, uh, point out that he had become too old, could not see, and he had lost the martial spirit which had defined his earlier years. So he dispatches a very diplomatic request to Guru Harai. Now, obviously, many Sikhs advise Guru Harai that, look, he's our enemy. He will be our enemy. Why not avenge Guru Arjan's, uh, you know, martyrdom and the you know the troubles Guru Hargobind confronted by letting his son die. Guru Harai, however, has enough foresight to post aside all personal vendettas and he tells them if Dara dies, there goes our hope of having a progressive uh, polity. We will save his life. And that's exactly what happens. He gives that herb to the Mughal couriers and they take it to uh, Delhi where Dara's life is saved. He's grateful to Guru Harai. Shah Jahan is grateful to Guru Harai. And in the meantime, the policy of, you know, viewing the Sikhs with hostility is dismantled by Delhi. Now, okay, here. Hmm. Let's, let's stop for a moment and think. Yep. All these political maneuvers, from where would have they learned it? Hmm. Okay, this is a very important point. So you were able to think critically. You were able to put your personal vendettas aside. And you were able to politically maneuver a much, much stronger opponent, adversary, I'm not going to use the word, hmm. into such a position exactly where you wanted them. Yeah? Yes. So do do you think that these these skills can be acquired by sitting in a pura for 26 years? No, no. So this is uh, Guru Harai, eh? Yes, this is Guru Harai. But even it's but, made out that but, even Guru Harai used to go in a pura. That's what's said as well today. But Guru Teg Badr would also have needed to learn the same thing. The same Context. thing. He was, he was, after all, advising Guru Harai from the Punjab as to what the situation was. He was closer to Delhi than Guru Harai. Correct. And he had actively engaged in battles, physical battles. Yes, yes. So all, all those skills, they don't come out of nowhere, sitting in a pura. You sit, mm. you sit in a pura for 26 years, you can't even walk straight. No. If you, if you sit for extended period, periods of time, I've seen all Babas and all Grandes, they all, without exception, have got bent knees. They can't walk. They walk like ducks. <laughs> well, I was going to say turtles, but too slow. But ducks is, yeah, <laughs> that's also a... Well, now yeah, I'm trying no. to imagine them with with wings and stuff. They already wear white, yeah, with like, like a duck. <laughs> no. What happens next is that in 1657, Shah Jahan becomes very ill. 
And this is when Aurangzeb strikes and takes over the throne with the Naqshbandis at his back. So he takes over Delhi, he imprisons Shah Jahan in the Red Fort. And what happens afterwards is that Shah Jahan imprisoned in the Red Fort, Aurangzeb declares Dara an apostate from Islam. And we know the punishment for apostasy in Islam is death. death. So Dara actually flees. He uh, collects a few rebellious Rajputs around him. And what happens is that he decides to confront Aurangzeb in a pitched battle, which is a very big mistake. And at the Battle of Samugar in 1658, he is defeated decisively by Aurangzeb. So what happens is that he flees and he collects three men to spot him, three of the most dangerous men on the subcontinent for Aurangzeb. So the first is Miyamir's successor, Mulesha. The third is Muhammad Said Sarmad, who's a Jew converted to Islam. And then obviously the third one is Guru Harai. Now, Dara is defeated by Aurangzeb on several other occasions. So what happens is that he decides to escape with an ad hoc military. Now, the problem is Mulesha has a lot of followers, but he doesn't have any military experience. Sarmad is a one-man show. So this only leaves Guru Harai as his foremost military ally. So what happens is that Dara flees to Ropar. Aurangzeb newly corners him. Aurangzeb's captains newly corner him down there. And now he has to traverse the river at Ropar. There's one single bridge which will allow him to cross the river, him and his army. So what he does is he sends a message for aid to Guru Harai. And what happens, Navjit, is Guru Harai actually comes down. Now, Guru Harai has Guru Tegbadar providing him the valuable intelligence by Tegbadar. So Guru Harai comes down with 2,200 Akalis from Kiratpur, and they have a brief skirmish with the Mughals, allowing Dara to cross the bridge. And afterwards, the Sikhs destroy that bridge. Yeah, the ropes were cut off, yeah. <clears throat> the ropes were cut off. So what happens next is that now from Kiratpur, the Sikhs can circumvent their way to Lahore, but the Mughals can't. So the Mughals obviously have to retreat. So this is when Guru Harai actually goes, returns to Kiratpur, and from there they actually make their way to Lahore, where a pro-Dara coalition is gathering. But we need to remember Dara is not a very proficient general. The guru says that, you know, he's a man who's struck by fear at the, you know, uh, in front of death. This man can't really be as progressive as, you know, it was believed he was. So slowly his allies leave him and Guru Harai is the first one to leave. So the guru asks him that, look, if you want to flee to Kandar, now is the best time to do it. If you don't, we can collect more allies and fight for you as long as you have a heart in the fight. Obviously, Dara is shaken by this, and he decides that he's going to flee to Kandar and make his way to Persia. <clears throat> Unfortunately, Aurangzeb corners him, and he's killed. So this obviously leaves Guru Harai as the last man standing in the field of battle. Mulesha is exiled from the subcontinent. Sarmad is executed by Masum, and Guru Harai is the only one out of the three who's safe at Kiratpur. Question for you. Yep. Does this this act of let's say rebelling against the Emperor of India, Aurangzeb, hmm. would have to do anything with the passing away of the Guru Sahib at such such a young age? <clears throat> okay, so let's progress on and that question will be answered. Now what happens is that Aurangzeb dispatches his army, a uh, portion of his army to capture the Guru three times. Obviously, there is a story that the Guru performed three miracles, but it's more than likely the Sikhs were you know, following the Guru's instructions. So the first time, 
pestilence broke out in the Mughal camp and the soldiers died from malaria. So the commander decided to beat a retreat. Obviously, this could be a form of biological warfare initiated by the Sikhs. The second time it said the commander is actually killed while he's sleeping. So this was assassination, most likely arranged by the Sikhs. A surgical strike, third, you might say. Surgical strike. <laughs> and the third time, the third time, most of the commanders and their uh, chiefs, their veterans are killed due to poisoned food. So this was probably the third surgical strike. <clears throat> so the fourth time around now, Aurangzeb himself being superstitious, he dispatches an edict to Guru Harai that, you know, please come to Delhi and let's just sort this out. He's not, he's not a, actually expressing fanaticism as he would later in his reign, because let's remember, he's actually new to the throne, so he's consolidating his grip still. <clears throat> so what happens is Guru Harai hears this message and refuses, saying, I'm not going there, but just to concede a bit of ground to Aurangzeb, I'll send my elder son Ram Rai to deal with him. And we know what happens next, don't we? We all know what happens next. Yep. Ram Rai willfully changes the Asa Divar, and obviously the Guru disowns him right there and then. And the works of historian Ajit Singh Bhaga in the early 20th century, he visited the Ram Raya Dera at Deradun, and uh, you know, he actually visited a Tibetan ruins near Kiratpur, and from them he actually managed to collect uh, primary sources which pointed out that Guru Harai was most likely poisoned by Ram Rai sympathizers on Aurangzeb's orders. My question has been answered. <clears throat> yep, now obviously you have the, you know, Suraj Prakash with its tale that the Guru married seven women with the youngest being a toddler. That was never the case. He was only ever married to one woman in his life, one sick woman. And the second thing was that, you know, obviously Kavi Santok Singh says that the Guru saw his wife's uh, handmaiden and couldn't, you know, resist, couldn't control himself. And Ram Rai was born out of wedlock. That's why he was not made the Guru. All these are rubbish stories. Reality is that the Guru never actually released his breath from the Dasam Dwar as it's made out or that he got Hukam from Vahiguru to leave the world. That was never the case. He was actually poisoned. That's what Ajit Singh Bhaga confirmed. But the theory or, you know, that substance, that evidence never took off because people did not want to accept it. Yep. And, and uh, if, if you, let's say, if you if you believe that Guru Sahib was poisoned, then your entire view changes about those, those events in the in the 17th and 18th century. <clears throat> those events. But the thing is, Guru Harai had poisoned. Yep. Another thing which this explains is that why Guru Harai acted so promptly to... Initiate, uh, officiate Guru Harkrishan as Guru. He had foreseen the eventuality of his own death. These are the things that a Sikh should think about deeply. Yeah? Yes, yes. So these, uh, what I mean to say is that these things have been happening. These things have happened to Guru Sabs. These are very earthly things. Hmm. Assassinations, jealousy, treachery, backstabbing. These are very humane things. Mm -hmm. you know, they're not associated with divinity or heaven or maybe why guru or something. These are very, very human qualities, bad human qualities. Hmm. <clears throat> now, what happens is that Guru Harkrishan is Guru, but his secret guardian from behind the stage, 
is Guru Teg uh, Pai Teg Bahadur all along. Yep, true. Now, obviously, we have the fact that there is the 1661-1666 discrepancy between Guru Gobind Singh's date of birth. The reality is that 1666 would make sense if the Pora myth is upheld, which it isn't, which it isn't by historical sources. So, so basic mathematics here? Yeah, basic mathematics. So basically... We also need to remember that Raja Jay Singh and Ram Singh, who were Guru Harkrishan's uh, protectors in Delhi for the time he was there, they were on the Sikh payroll. That's why they actually rushed to protect the Gurus. So when Guru Harkrishan dies, as he's about to die, now the myth is that he smashed a coconut and said, Baba Bakara. The reality is that a day before he collected a council of you know trustworthy loyal Sikhs veteran Sikhs and confirm to them who his successor would be well that, that's more more likely to happen a guru cannot give such a vague direction or a vague order <clears throat> now the Makansha Lubana tale that Makansha Lubana prayed for the guru to come over the guru swam over lifted up the ship from the sandbar fine then okay let's accept the guru's able to you know cross time and space in less than a few nanoseconds. How was Makansha Lubana, whose ship was said to have, you know, docked at Calcutta, able to come to Punjab in a matter of few weeks and then find the Guru and start shouting Guru Ladiore, Guru Ladiore, Guru Ladiore? The very first thing is how much time would I have taken for the news to reach him? That's the thing. That's the thing. So no, the reality is that when Guru Hara actually uh, Guru Harkrishan actually signaled his decision. Obviously, word would have leaked out, or you know, they would have said that the next guru, the council upon his you know demise, would have said the next guru is at Bakara. We had the 20 Saudis run up and set up their manjis claiming to be gurus too fooled and credulous. Now, obviously, this would have all been allowed by Aurangzeb. Now, let's remember all this Lord Thir, Malaram Rai, all the Saudis, they were under Aurangzeb, they had joined forces with him. What, however, happens next is the council comes along and says that there is one person at Bukhara who is the guru. And that is Teg Bahadur, who was supposedly at Delhi, but who had secretly returned to Bukhara. Because being in Delhi for him would have been dangerous. He could not have been officiated as a guru in Delhi. Not when Aurangzeb was directly next to him. So he's declared as guru, the Saudis flee, and the Delhi court is left gnashing its teeth at being outsmarted by a child like Guru Harkrishan. <clears throat> so the next few years we see of Guru Tegabadur's incumbency, they prove very decisive in the lead up to the manifestation of the Khalsa. So rather than make this voluminous and focus on all the minor details, let's just cover a brief period of Guru Teg Bahadur's life before moving on to the gist. As Guru, he liberated Darbar Sahib from the clutches of the Hindu Pujaris who had actually installed idols therein. The Masandas refused to help him, but their wives helped him. Uh, he traveled far and wide, you know, converting thousands to Sikhi, consolidating the Sangat. And then he also laid the foundation for Anandapur at the Makova ruins in the Shivalik Hills. Yeah, true. Now, in mid-1666, 
Aurangzeb decided that he wanted a measure of Teg Bahadur. You know, they said that this is the son of Hargobind, and Aurangzeb was well conversant with his father's battles. He had probably, you know, organized the logistics for the armies which had gone to battle Guru Hargobind, so he knew what the Sikhs were made out of. And the Naqshbandis had foremost enemies, and these were Sikhs. So Aurangzeb orders Alam Khan Rohila to arrest Guru Teg Bahadur, who's actually hunting in the jungles near Delhi. So what happens is the Guru is arrested, Brought to Delhi, obviously there's a contingency plan if the Guru is killed prematurely. But what happens is that, you know, Ram Singh, Jay Singh, already on the Sikh payroll, they tell the Guru that this is just a test. He wants to arrest you, put you in jail for some time, spread rumors that he's about to kill you, incite some sort of a reaction from the Sikhs so he can crush them openly without having to fear the fact that, you know, some other factions might rise up against him. Because we need to remember this is still the consolidation period for Aurangzeb. He's not fully consolidated his incumbency. Guru Teg Bahadur intimates all this to the Sikhs. The Sikhs refuse to take the bait. And after a few months, Aurangzeb, who's fallen into believing that the Sikhs have called and Guru Teg Bahadur is only a you know, fighter and has you know, no intelligence like his father, Aurangzeb lets him go. <clears throat> now, these events coincide with another very peculiar set of events. And that is the rise of the Marathas. And the two are interlinked quite considerably. <clears throat> now, are you aware that the Marathas initially were never free but had overlords? True. And do you know who these overlords were? Well, we all know who these overlords were. The Patans. Yeah, the South and Patans. Now, they were always a thorn in the Mughal side because the Mughals wanted to pave their way to the Dakkan. And to do so, they would have to reduce the Patans who would otherwise have, you know, destroyed their supply lines. So now the thing is that these Bijapur Patans, they employed the Marathas as mercenaries, had been doing so for centuries. And Shaji Raja Bhonsle, who was Shivaji's father, and Shivaji as well himself, they had taken part in ruthless expeditions directed against their own Hindu compatriots. So they had, you know, lead the first attack during the Karnataka expedition in which countless Hindu temples were destroyed and, you know, the peasantry and the Hindu elite put down very barbarically. <clears throat> uh, keeping that in your memory that... Uh... Aurangzeb wasted 25 years fighting in the Deccan. 25 years. 25 years fighting in the Deccan. And that was actually one of the Mughal uh, dreams to conquer Deccan and, you know, open the routes to South India. Anyhow, what happens is that the Bijapur Sultanate, Shaji dies and Shivaji is entrusted with Maratha command. He's very weak, very indecisive. And he... Let's just say the word would be pisses off or insults Afsal Khan, his Batan overlord. Obviously, Khan clashes with Shivaji and Shivaji assassinates him with a Bhaganaka or that, you know, that uh, tiger claw as that famous painting depicts. Now, unbeknownst to uh, Shivaji, Afsal Khan's successors have already, you know, formed a coalition with Aurangzeb. Aurangzeb dispatches Shaista Khan to, you know, bring Shivaji to reign. Shaista Khan is a very astute naval commander, unable to fight on land. Shivaji defeats him, but in turn, Jay Singh arrives and destroys the entire Maratha cavalry. Shivaji submits to him, 
And then subsequently, Jaising actually makes an appointment between Shivaji and Aurangzeb because Shivaji, based on a primary letter, which is a, if I understand correctly, preserved in either the Delhi Museum or the Maharashtra Museum, because uh, it's also mentioned by Besam in his uh, biography of Shivaji, which is accepted as being the most uh, authentic biography of Shivaji historically. In that letter, Shivaji mentions to Aurangzeb, requests Aurangzeb that, can you please allow me to obtain Kandhar for you with my own resources? I want to become your vessel. You're going to piss off a lot of people, bro. <laughs> now, obviously, Aurangzeb is very suspicious. Very, very suspicious. Because he knows what, you know, the relationship between Shivaji and Afzal Khan had deteriorated. So he decides to imprison Shivaji. What happens is that Shivaji is imprisoned and Shivaji escapes. Now, Shivaji was supposed to be, you know, heavily guarded by Raja Ram Singh, Jai Singh's son. So Shivaji naturally escapes. And what happens is that a very pissed off Aurangzeb decides to uh, depute Ram Singh to fight the homes in modern day Bengal. Now, the fact is that the homes are actually in a very uh, plagued down region. They are actually, you know, fighting a battle of attrition with the Mughals. There's been no subsequent or, you know, uh, any consequential, uh, you know, victory for them. So what's happened is that the Mughals are at a stalemate. The Homs are at a stalemate. Ram Singh's given command of 6,700 Mughal Rajput soldiers, but he also is aware that the Rajputs, his Rajputs, are very jealous of his position and they're preparing to stab him in the back. So he approaches his father, uh, Jay Singh, to advise him what to do. So we have two primary sources here. The first is a letter written by Ram Singh, kept in the Patna Museum. Now, this was directed to Guru Tegbhadar, and it said that, you know, your father had released some of the forefathers of these Rajputs who are planning to do me in. Can you broker a peace between us? And the second near contemporary source was written during Bandar Singh Bhadar's time by a Rajput agent at the Mughal court in Delhi. And that also mentions that, you know, Ram Singh requested Guru Tegh Bhadar who agreed to accompany him to the East. Of note down here is the fact that like the trolls today are promoting based on Hariram Gupta's assertions, the Guru was never an employee of the Mughals. An employee of the Mughals. What an yeah, insult. These two sources, these two primary sources confirm that. And Guru Tegbhadar agreed because he was already preparing to go to the east to consolidate the Sangats down there on the condition that Ram Singh prevent any untoward incident transpiring between him and the Mughals. Point number one, that he wasn't a Mughal employee and two, he would depart before the bulk of the Mughals arrived. Point number two, which proves he wasn't an employee. And that's exactly what transpired. The guru broke at a you know, temporary truce, and from there he departed to go elsewhere in modern-day Bangladesh. Now, obviously, Captain Bhag Singh and Mool Singh Chima and many other historians have actually you know, conf uh, confirmed the fact that a majority of these Gurdwaras in Pakistan and Bangladesh aren't related with the gurus. They have been built, you know, falsely to loot the Sangats. Only a few are actually, you know, authentic. Anyhow... Not only in Bangladesh, see... mate. Not only in Bangladesh. Mm -hmm. Now, of course, the Bachitra Natak we know mentions that uh, the Guru went to all these different pilgrimage sites and made pilgrims. 
and that's how Guru Gobind Singh was born. That's why I mentioned this point, because even if there are Gurdwaras down there, they need to be analyzed carefully for their history. Why would Guru Tegh Bahadur make all these pilgrims when he made multiple copies of the Guru Granth and each of these facsimiles, all these beers have Bhakt Ramanand Shabad, that there is no use in going to pilgrimage sites. Aren't you expecting too much out of an average Sikh today? Well, I mean, here's one more point. Here's one more bomb. I mean, Dr. Gurbak Singh from Ontario once went to India and he actually went to Benares and down there is a Gurdwara. The Granthi recited a katha that one day a Sikh asked Guru Tegabhadar while he was at Banaras, how can I have darshan of you? And the Guru told him, lift that stone. The Sikh lifted that stone and Ganga came out. And the Guru said, have a bath in this water of Ganga. Now there's a sarovar and the Gurdwara, obviously man-made, which is claimed to be Ganga. Dr. Gurbak Singh asked the Granthi something. Now this was, you know, obviously after the 80s. So he said, uh, are Sikhs Hindus? And the Granthi said, no. So he said, why didn't you guys say that, uh, you know, the Sikh lifted the stone and Amritsar Sarovar came out? What say you? Well, uh, <laughs> well the very first thing, I can only laugh. And the second thing yep. is, how devoid of intelligence could, could that Granthi be? That he never asked himself this question. That we are Sikhs, Ganga has got no importance for us. Mm-hmm. Absolutely none. No, none. None at all. No. no. Uh, and uh, do remember that uh, even if they said that Amrsar Sarovar is, is here, even if they had said that, mm-hmm. would that make sense? No. So it's, it's just a Gurdwara for, for income. So Sikhs, yep. Sikhs are strong in their faith. So let's build a Gurdwara, guaranteed income. Guaranteed income. Now, coming back to what's happening here is that Guru Tegbhadar is actually returning from Bengal. He's consolidated the Sangats down there. He knows that the Panth can very nearly be wiped out in the Punjab. And if it does, at least the Sikhs outside the Punjab will keep on fighting for Sikhi. Now, as he's returning, he's informed of, you know, latest developments on the subcontinent. So what's actually happened is around the 16, the early 1600s, and Thomas Rowell, the English president of a factory at Suratwood, you know, note in his memoirs in 1679, and so would the contemporary Ital- uh, Italian mercenary Manuki or Manusi, as his name is, you know, variably mentioned, they would note that Aurangzeb actually reintroduced the jizya, the you know infidelity tax. So for a non-Muslim, you have to pay it. Infidelity was made akin to treason against the state. So if you were a Muslim, you were a citizen. If you weren't, you were a traitor to the state, even if you hadn't carried out any seditious acts. Same time as Manushi or Manuki notes, many Hindus who were unable to pay tend Mohammedan, Aurangzeb rejoices. And then the works of the fundamentalist Qadi, the Muslim judge Moghith of Bayana, circa 13th century, they were really introduced to the mainstream. And Moghith had this to say about, you know, the tax collectors, the payee should remain polite even if the tax collector spits in his mouth. And this actually became a practice. So if they came to collect a jizya, they would spit in your mouth just to, you know, impose themselves on you. Okay, uh, I'd like to give, uh, let's say, another 
Well, it's an example, but it's a true example. It could be t- taken as a source. Okay. Yep. In the Namashad district of Punjab, there is a village called uh, Jadla. Yes. Even today, Hindu Kodeva Rajputs live there. Yes. A branch of Kodeva Rajputs had converted to Islam back in the time when Aurangzeb was a ruler because only a Muslim could own property. Mm. So let's say one brother embraced Islam, then he got the property. And then after Aurangzeb passed away, his, his Hindu brothers joined him on his property. That's how that village was founded. Mm-hmm. So this is an evidence of Aurangzeb's policies that one can go to Namashar Jadla village today and talk to the elders and they will tell you the exact same story. And that's only one example. Oh, one example is enough. You, you can have more examples, but I've given you one example that you can go today and verify. Mm-hmm. That's right. Now, so what happens is that from around 1661, we know from 1661, Aurangzeb had started the spontaneous state-sponsored bouts of temple destruction. And in 1662, a Hindu temple at Mathura was demolished and supplanted with a mosque. From 1665 to 1666 to 1668, these became routine. Temple demolitions, blanket ban on you know, non-Muslim festivals. And in 1669, the orders were given that, you know, the entire non-Islamic heritage of India had to be destroyed. So the Juts initially arose to confront the Mughals, but they were brought to heel with 5,000 slain, 7,000 enslaved. And to exacerbate this injury, a temple they had built at Mathara was destroyed and its idols placed beneath the steps of a mosque. Now, at the same time, let's remember the Sikhs had a dog in this fight as well. Aurangzeb particularly targeted them. And this is a history which is always hidden from us. He established mutasibs or centers for Islamic morals. And these were made to specially target Gurdwaras. Now, the contemporary observer Mirza Inyatullah Khan, he records that Aurangzeb specifically ordered a Gurdwara demolished in the region of Sirhand. The site was then made over to Darvesh Saib Zafar, who constructed a rudimentary mosque on the ruins of the Gurdwara and commenced publicly humiliating the Sikhs. Now, in retaliation, given that there was no justice forthcoming, several Sikhs assassinated Zafar. And Aurangzeb ordered a whole widespread scale massacre of the Sikhs and their expulsion because of this. That's something that I, I don't even know. I've heard mm-hmm. about this incident, so, but I know nothing about it. So what happens is that all this convinces Guru Tegh Badr he has to return to the Punjab, and he does. And from there, what he does is he shifts his family to the village of Lucknow and then directs them to go to Anandapur, which is nearly finished. After that, from 1672 to 1675, he actually keeps abreast of all the, you know, happenings on the subcontinent. Meanwhile, Mughal intelligence has its eyes right on him. We have the Satanami rebellion. Now, the Satanamis were not Hindus in any, you know, sense of the term. They were Sikh sympathizers, and it was the Sikh ideology which convinced them to, you know, rebel against the Mughals. Unfortunately, they lost, and the survivors were, you know, left to limp off into the jungles of central India, where they fell prey to caste elitists. Today, their descendants are in Glasgow, and that's where I believe they have one of the authentic beers of the Guru Granth Sahib, 
created by Guru Tegh Bahadur himself. Yep, I know that one. So in 1674, Aurangzeb arrives in the Punjab to subdue the Afridi Khatak revolt. He orders his, uh, you know, Islamic governors to, you know, exterminate infidelity from the Punjab. Now at the same time, Guru Tegh Bahadur is giving his clarion call of fear, not frightened, not. Anandapur has opened its doors to multiple refugees. You know, the Sikhs are training for war. All this Aurangzeb is a fear of. Only thing is that he doesn't attack the Sikhs because they're in a mountainous stronghold. Now, the question is, why did the Guru never confront the Mughals militarily? Well, it, it doesn't make any sense to do so. Several answers. The first is Sikhi was close to a ratification phase and could not forfeit its socio-spiritual slash religio-political figurehead on the field of battle. It was, you know, too early for him to die. He couldn't die. His leadership was still important. Second was that the Mughal military machine had increased and Guru Tegh Bahadur lacked any viable allies and the Sikh forces went really big in number. Third is unable to fight a pitched battle. The only mode of warfare he could undertake was guerrilla warfare and this would force him into the jungles of Punjab where he would be hemmed in by the Mughals. And then we have the most crucial one. Shivaji was warring for autonomy but was prepared to surrender if Aurangzeb incorporated him within the Mughal military. Rajput's only ward for personal gain. Sikhs, meanwhile, were preparing to incite in Hitherto unseen revolution against the state, and the Guru could not risk its premature demise by confronting the Mughals. The stakes were more higher for him than they were for the Marathas and the Rajputs. So, yeah, that uh, these reasons that well, all of, all of us should know, but uh, these reasons, they sound very viable and uh, very justified. Hmm. Now, what happens is that now, obviously, there's certain species of trolls we are talking about targeting the Guru. They will resort to anything to disprove Sikh history. Obviously, one of these idiots actually mentioned that the Gurbilas doesn't mention Kashmiri pundits visiting, you know, Anandapur. The Gurbilas, he used the same edition, same publishing date. We acquired it and double-checked it, and it actually did. So far, we are still to hear back from him, but we have, you know, forfeited any hope that this idiot will reply back. Now, what happens is that this time around, Aurangzeb mandates Sheriff Khan Khan, his, uh, you know, primary governor in North India, with ridding both Kashmir and the Punjab of infidelity. Now, this is what happens. Kashmiri Pandits, who are the foremost Brahmin intellectuals in the subcontinent, the foremost preservers of Hindu heritage, they are the first ones to be targeted. And Aurangzeb has actually done a very strategic thing down here. He's decided that, look, if I go for the brains, the body will follow suit. I'll go for the Pandits straight away as they're the brains of the Hindu faith. Now, here's the funny thing. The Pandits sat down, assessed the situation. The Marathas did not stand in good stead with them nor did the Rajputs. Both were fickle enough to convert for their own gain. This only left one recourse. They decided that they would petition Guru Tegh Bahadur to lift the sword to protect them, to lead the Sikhs to die for them, for their preservation. Now, the Patavahiya and Kashmiri Pandit records record that a 15-man Pandit deputation arrived at Anandapur on 25th May 1675. They were received by the Guru in his court. What happens next is open to debate. I don't believe that Guru Tegh would have suddenly said to the Pandits, okay, look, I'm ready to die for you. We just said the stakes were too high. 
It's made out that the stakes are too high. He wouldn't have said straight away, I'm ready to die for you. That makes no sense. That makes no sense. Now, Ratan Singh Pangu says that the pundits promise that we will become Sikhs if you die for us. But the <laughs> oh, uh, Hindus wow. refuse to... Well, this is the Gurtaid Singh version. So the Hindus refused to uphold this end of the bargain, proved ungrateful. Only Kirpa Ram became Kirpa Singh and died fighting at Chamkor. However, however, the Gursoba mentions this. Therefore, the you know, not explicitly for the Telak Janu or Taramsala, but for these non-Islamic concepts, Guru Teg Bahadur decided to shed his life. On the other hand, however, the earliest one we have, Pai Jetta Shri Gurkatha. Now, we discussed this last time as well. So the Shri Gurkatha is actually written by Pai Jeevan Singh, who was obviously the individual, the Singh who brought Guru Teg Bahadur's head back from Delhi. And I have the Gurkatha here. I'm trying to find the proper page. That makes a very interesting note regarding, you know, what Guru Gobind Singh actually said. So <clears throat> what it says really is that this is what Guru Gobind Singh said, you know, upon the time when Guru Teg Bhadar was actually made a martyr. Now, regarding Guru Teg Bhadar's martyrdom, this was a very potent event. And what Pai Jetta says is this, that Hal baro nahi hind ka, hal bura nahi hind ka, koi dukh nivare. Sorry was the state of hind, sublime the fund of anguish. There was none equipped to purge and deliver us from it all. Then through the threshold of the Guru, our mourning and lament reached the Lord in Baikunt to spread the fragrance divine upon us, descended at the time the Savior Guru Teg Bhadu. Now, here is something interesting. Please note this. The crafty and the wicked have twisted the Guru's tenets and tarnished his sacred image. The Guru, however, regards with equal gaze all castes and creeds as one human race. Same as parents who equally love all their progeny, it is a fact God's residence is not constrained to Mecca, Kaaba, or Mandirs. And it seems when we go forward, this is what Guru Gobind Singh has to say about you know what has happened. The gurus follow uh, the witnesses to the carnage, the you know carnage of Guru Teg Bhadra. The Hindus are co-sinners and this, they're suffering the grip of shame. So to me, it seems that from Pai Jetta, what Pai Jetta is saying, that the guru decided, because the Sikhs obviously had a dog in this fight, all along. And <clears throat> Guru Teg Bhadra knew that very soon Aurangzeb would be marching to Anandapur to kill him. And that, you know, it would be best to fool Aurangzeb to, you know, leave Anandapur for the meanwhile he couldn't do it while he was alive, but if he went and died at Delhi, Aurangzeb would be fooled in believing the Sikhs were finished prematurely. And it seems when the pundits arrived at the court, the Guru also criticized them, saying that caste and Sharia are the one and the same. Both deny the freedom of conscience. I'm going out there to die for the freedom of conscience. This is something the Sikhs would usher in in the future. If you're with us, that's fine. If not, then we will fight you as well. So the, the the pundits decided not to go to the hill rice put chips. They decided to go in over. They decided to come to Guru Tegabad. They're knowing Guru Tegabad there was impartial, but Guru Tegabad there was well aware that the pundits weren't impartial. That you know caste was the same as Sharia. No, it is. 
And Guru Tegh brother pretty much told the pundits, the fact that most of them left Anandapur and we don't hear much about them again, the fact that only a few stayed behind, Kirpa Ram became a martyr by becoming Kirpal Singh, but Chandu decided to betray Guru Gobind Singh's family. The thing is that they actually thought Guru Tegh Bahadur would lift the sword for them. The Sikhs would die for them. The Guru refused straight away to defend them and said, I'm going to die for the freedom of conscience. Yes, caste is an evil, but it's an evil which can't be destroyed by the evil of Sharia. Only through love and logic and rationality, but the Sikhs will dismantle both Sharia, both caste, just because we are confronting Sharia today. Don't think we have forgotten about your system as well. That, that is what I believe happened. Well, that's, it, that's it, it gives you something to ponder about. Gives you something to ponder about. Uh, I mean, uh, if you look at Dharma, Dharma is based on three concepts. Okay, reincarnation of a past physicality, rejection of social life, and uh, rejection, uh, renunciation of social life and rejection of uh, logic. We don't have that type of dharma in Sikhi as well. So it's worlds apart. So even though the event was celebrated as being, you know, for the Hindus, especially when the Bachitta Natak was written, what we read from the Gursoba pretty much makes it out to be a universal martyrdom, which was against Islamic practices of, you know, suppressing non-Muslims. But from the Gurkata, it's evident that the fundamental core value was a Sikh-centric value that individuals have the freedom of conscience, and that is a divine freedom. Individuals have a freedom of conscience. Hmm. So what happens is that the Guru journeys to Sarhanda with the Pai, Matidas, Satidas, and Dialdas, and down there, they offer their arrest by criticizing the Islamic State. Straight away, they're arrested by the Subedar and dispatched to Delhi. And obviously, we know what happens down there. Aurangzeb is actually in Delhi. This was proven by Sardar Kapoor Singh because it was the rainy season in the Dakkan. He wasn't campaigning. He was nowhere else. He was actually in Delhi. That's the thing. So he was in Delhi at the time, personally met the Guru. I've seen the cage where they kept the Guru in to torture him. Even Khwaja Muhammad Masoom could not you know, convince Guru Tegh to convert to Islam. This is what Guru Tegh said to Aurangzeb. Look, people call me such a Padsha. It's their right to call me such a Padsha. I have weapons. I have horses. I'll keep them. Providence has given them to me. And Aurangzeb told him, why don't you become like Shri Chand and the Udasis? We will have no problem. The Guru refused straight away, saying that Shri Chand was, you know, disowned by Baba Nanak. What happens next is that he writes a letter to Aurangzeb as well, that the man you call prophet could not convert the entire world to Islam. So what chance, Aurangzeb, do you stand to convert me to Islam? So look at that spirit down there. He's come there prepared to confront certain death, and he's still got the, I guess, the spirit to confront Aurangzeb on each and every point. So, uh, okay. Have you seen the movie, uh, The Karate Kid, the modern one? Yes. Uh, no, not the Cobra Kai one, no. So it's uh, Jaden Smith here? Yes. So uh, there is a scene in that movie that uh, th there is some, let's say, a Kung Fu practitioner, a female one. Yeah. And she's trying to copy the movements of a snake. Yes. But it's dawned upon him that the it's the opposite, actually. The snake is copying her movement. Ah, uh, yes, yes, yes. 
you see what i mean yes i do i do so in this case the snake orangzeb he's not the master of the situation no he's not so he is doing what gurusaheb wants him to do exactly now gurusaheb for gurusaheb you know gurusaheb does not fear death he's lived an inspirational life death is only one of the conclusive parts to that life not everything he's done what he has to he's achieved it so he does not fear death well he proved it he proved it obviously we know how pai matida satidas dialdas are executed and then subsequently the guru himself who refuses to convert to islam and is given their prior uh, you know their uh, foremost punishment it's believed in islam that the infidel without his head will actually hold up his head and confess his infidelity on the day of judgment so under those rules and regulations those superstitions they execute guru teg bahadur by beheading him now coming to the modern day now in the present context a majority of trolls have been making very big attacks against the guru we will call them ivory tower intellectual attacks now the first one is that only sikh sources mention the guru's martyrdom and no persian sources mention them so <clears throat> thanks to sardar inderjit singh who actually provided this to us we have several sources which i'll you know mention and just give you a very brief um description of them so these are gurmukhi and persian sources and you would know some of them as well first one is the padshah buranji now buranji are the historical chronicles written by assam state officials and nobles and the scribe may not have personally known guru teg bahadur or raja ram singh but wrote what he heard from their official circles now what's happened is that this source does have very problems in it and what it says is that uh the guru had 30000 nanak panthi or you know sikh soldiers the terms were used interchangeably and that uh the fact is that the writer of the branch is a mogul official so he's actually had to you know provide some official you know justification for what happened and he just uh, you know says that the guru was a danger to the state and the state obviously executed him and something very you know funny down here is that the offer mentions that brahmana priests and the kwajis reported to orangzeb that the guru does not belong to any particular school or faith and goes about ravaging the country hmm. so it seems it wasn't only a case of mogul islamists being against the guru there was more as well so we have others as well now so you know there is the raja ram singh incident as well then we have you know obviously the bachitra natak now of course you know there are problems with the bachitra natak but the bachitra natak also mentions that you know guru teg bahadur sacrificed himself for another faith even though you know i guess you know pseudo scholars like what do you call him a uh, conrad elstein or something on twitter they're trying to actually uh make it out to be that you know it says that he sacrificed himself for his own faith based on the suraj prakash which says that the guru said i'm a hindu and i want to die a hindu false story <laughs> obviously but wahis the but wahis are actually a bit more you know a very a uh, bit more accurate not the pandava he's but the but wahis obviously they say that you know the but they sort of confused the narration as well because some of these wahis were written after guru teg bahadur died so what it mentions is it sort of confuses two events 
But we understand that there was the time when Alam Khan Rohina arrested Guru Tegh Bahadur and that he was subsequently released and then what led to his martyrdom and his martyrdom. Now there's another book, Kalimat e Tuabit, and that actually mentions the Sarhand incident. <clears throat> and uh, Mirza Inayatullah Khan's, you know, Akami Alamgiri. That's what his memoirs are called. Then we have Kafi Khan's book, Man Takub Alubab. Obviously, that says the same as well, that, you know, the guru was a rebel, but it does not mention, you know, him being a ravager or anything. Then obviously we have Pat Vahita Luda, Pargana Jind, and, you know, twice Rup Singh's Guru Kiyasaki also corroborates. That's uh, pretty much the same. Bansavali Nama, Pat Vahia, Brahman records, they mentioned that, you know, Guru Tegh Bahadur died for the freedom of conscience, even though they give it that pro-Hindu twist. Now, The other one we have is that the Siyar al mutakirin Now, you know, funny thing down here is that according to these trolls, Saeed Ghulam Hussain, now the writer of this particular Persian record is Saeed Ghulam Hussain. In 1782, he wrote this for the British. Now, funny thing is, according to these trolls, Muslim historians were uneducated, but when they actually have to, you know, utilize them to, you know, disparage someone against them, they will leave no stone unturned in proving their hypocrisy. Now, Sardar Kapoor Singh actually tracked down Hussein's original work in Persian. Now, this was written for the British, as I mentioned, and it has a lot of mythology in it. Hussein mentions about the Sikhs and says that, uh, you know, Guru Tegh Bahadur actually joined Adam Hafiz, who was, uh, you know, uh, acolyte of Ahmad Shah Sirhindi, and they ravaged the countryside together. Aurangzeb executed both of them, and Guru Tegh Bahadur was hung and quartered, and his remains were hung up on the four gates of Lahore. Of Lahore, not Delhi. Of Lahore, not Delhi. Now, obviously, all contemporary Persian sources dismiss this. Our idiot trolls, though, will use this because it is something they believe is against the Sikhs. Fact is that Adam Hafiz had died, maybe, or if I understand correctly, he had actually died 34 years prior to Guru Tegh Bahadur being executed. And there is no question of the Guru joining the house of Sirhindi. So what we have, what emerges essentially, is that the British deliberately mistranslated the work into English. That's what Sardar Kapoor Singh fought, uh, uh, found. He actually uh, compared the translation by, I believe, the military historian Raymond Briggs, who actually translated it during Ranjit Singh's time. And he found that the Persian never disparaged the Guru. It was only the English region which tried casting the Guru as, you know, being someone who subsisted on rapine and plunder. Projecting their own habits onto the others? Yes, and that's why it's very crucial we actually track down these sources. Then we have the Kulasat Ottwarik in 1695 by Sojan Rai Pandari obviously mentions the same thing that the guru was very defiant to the state and executed. Another Persian account is Bhim Sen's Nushka Idul Kusha. Again, same story that Guru Tegh Bahadur, you know, had a very large following and Aurangzeb was jealous. Ibratnama in 1719. Same story that, you know, Guru Tegh Bahadur was someone who was actually opposed to uh, Aurangzeb and Aurangzeb was very jealous of him. Char Gulshan by Rai Chutarman Suksena, 1759-60, same story. And then we have Father Xavier Vendel's, you know, Le Memories de Vendel's or Les Fat Les Patan et Les Sikh, written in French in 1768. And that also makes it out to be a 
similar incident as well. So we have Persian sources as well, which confirm air side of the story. It's just a matter of us looking into them and not relying on these opportunist trolls. Uh, I'm just trying to contemplate that what could be the entire motivation behind all these activities? It seems that the first motivation was to utilize the Sikhs as cannon fodder and then now to discard the Sikhs. So we are just a branch, not a separate tree. Not a separate tree. And I guess it's high time as well that we look at our history through Gurbani. We try tracking down our history properly. Now, how many people, I mean, I guess the committee at the Gurdwara I mentioned about the Ganga Silver, they're probably millionaires by now. <laughs> more, more than that, mate. More than that. And this is the story of Guru Tegh Bhadr. This is the history of Guru Tegh Bhadr. And we need to start, you know, if we focus on the fact that the Sikhs were some nationalist or territorial force, our achievements are pretty much zero. If we focus on the truth that we were there to change the world from the start, then our achievements become quite significant. That's that's something we need to remember. Sikh history needs to be relooked at, particularly the history of our gurus. Oh, we cannot emphasize this sentence enough. We need to you know, track track down the track down the original sources. We need to have a look out of our history again, and we need to authenticate it. Yes, that's right. I mean, we have such, such you know, legendary historians, Dr. Mahinder Singh, Josh Pai, Karam Singh historian, Captain Bag Singh, you know, even Professor Saib Singh for what he was worth. We have proper historians. We just need to look at those works. For me, it's quite e quite easy to believe whatever the, the local Baba tells me and you know, just say Vaiguru Vaiguru thousand times a day. That's not cutting it now. That's not <laughs> cutting it. You telling me that's not enough? That's not the key? That's not the key. I'm saying it loud and clear. That's not the key. Well, now, yeah. Well, for vast majority of people, that's it. You go to the Gurdwara, you follow your local Santa Baba, and you read Gurbani once in a, once in a year or something, and that's it. That's it. Now, coming back to how this martyrdom culminated, Guru Tegabhadr laid down his life for his ideals, but he didn't do it in a fit of passion. He did it with a very cool head. And that's what makes that martyrdom so significant. That's why our legs tremble, because obviously there are people who fortify themselves in buildings and you know get ready to fight. But here, Guru Tegh Bhadra is preparing to hand himself over to the enemy, suffer all forms of indignity and humil humiliation, just so his ideals persist and survive. And ultimately, that's his big victory. Because, you know, something I've seen down there at, uh, you know, when I went to uh, Delhi a long time ago, the Gurdwara where he was beheaded, see Skanja. There's a mosque right next to it. There and is. It's... And it's said that Aurangzeb had told the Guru that this is the future of India. And the Guru had asked him that, you know, why India, why not the world? And Aurangzeb had said, yep, this is the future of the world. There will be mosques on every street. And the Guru had said, well, who knows? Maybe one day people will come here to, you know, remember my Sikhs who you have killed. And there might be no one at the mosque. That's proven right, hasn't it? Because the people at that mosque come to the Gurdwara for longer. Well, that is true. But uh, you, uh, I mean sarcastic here, 
what Aurangzeb yes. predicted is also coming true. This is something which the world needs to confront, and the gurus have actually laid down, you know, very golden standards for us. The fact is that we expect others to emulate them. Do we follow them ourselves? That's the foremost question. And that question needs to be answered in some other podcast, then. Yep, that question needs to be answered in another episode. Thank you very much for listening. Why <laughs> <laughs>